Amy, we've got a bunch of little nieces and nephews between us, but we've also got a catch-all gift that all of our siblings love for their newborns. You're totally right, and it's Pampers Swaddlers, because Pampers Swaddlers wick wetness away to keep babies drier and subsequently parents happier. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better versus the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance. They're hypoallergenic and they're free of parabens and latex. Now you can try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes won't tear. In fact, they grip mess, shall we say, more firmly and clean better, leaving baby skin dry, soft, and smooth. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from the What Fresh Hell podcast. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And today we're talking to Ned Johnson. Ned is an author, speaker, and founder of Prep Matters, an educational company providing academic tutoring, educational planning, and standardized test preparation. With Dr. William Sticksrud, Ned is the co-author of The Self-Driven Child, The Science and Sense of Giving Your Kids More Control Over Their Lives, which explores how fostering kids' autonomy can help solve two challenges seemingly endemic to kids today, handling anxiety and developing intrinsic motivation. Ned is also the host of the Prep Talks podcast, which offers conversations with parenting and education experts. Welcome, Ned. Thanks for having me. This is a topic that we have been talking a lot about in recent episodes, giving our kids more autonomy at the same time that we're all learning on top of each other at the dining room table and they're asking us for help every 10 minutes, the the special challenges of this moment. What are you seeing in this moment? Well, my kids are a little older than, than some of those. I have a son who's a freshman in college and a daughter who's a junior in high school. But certainly one of the challenges with this whole pandemic and, and, and schooling from home is that we as parents are seeing what our kids are doing or <laughs> more likely not doing in terms of school. And it can be crazy making where if they were doing whatever they're doing with their friends or school and we didn't have to know about it, it frankly made it a lot easier for us. And so we as parents so often want to control what kids are doing, maybe because we think it's important for them, but more often because it makes us less nuts. That is so true. In general, we talk a lot about too much information, right? That I feel like back in the day, somehow our parents were sort of like, go to school. It's not my problem. My dad could not have told you one of my teacher's names for $1 million. And that was kind of the good news in a way. And I do think that that's right, that I am so involved now. My kids are third grade, fifth grade, seventh grade, and I am way too involved with like what they know about Mesopotamia right now. And it's not going great. I can hear that. <laughs> I can hear that. There was a great there was a great article on the post a couple of years ago, and it was about these moms, this kind of group of them who had been kind of walking their kids all the way through year after year, and they're sort of like, "Oh my gosh, it's fifth grade. I don't know if we can do fifth grade math." And you're thinking, "Oh, lady, you want to get off this train now because it doesn't get better down the line, right? You're going to relearn pre calculus or trigonometry to teach that to your kids." 
Right. And back in the day, you didn't really have to do it. But now I have kids who are coming to me and saying, okay, how do I get these negative fractions to have the same common denominator? And I'm like, uh, you picked the wrong mom for this job, kids, because <laughs> I have no idea. Or in my house, my, my kids are older. I have kids who are 17, 16, and 13. But one of my kids just had a like late to Zoom, yelled out in front of the whole class moment that, again, I would not have known about. This kid found it very distressing. And I would never have known about it if it had happened at a physical school a mile and a half away from me. Instead, it was happening in the middle of my house. And it's, you know, I try to let my kids be in charge of their own lives, but it's a lot harder when it's happening right in front of you. It's a really good point to me. I mean, certainly there are parents finally having an insight on what their kids are experiencing in school. So there's potentially some upside in getting a, a clearer sense of the dynamic if, if things could be going better with your kid in class or what the teacher is doing. But I think fundamentally, one of the questions we want to keep asking ourselves is whose problem is it? Right. We have this natural tendency as parents, as frankly, as mammals to want to jump in and protect our young, including if they're being treated poorly or if, or if they're really, you know, completely overwhelmed by negative numbers. And we want to jump in and help. But all of science shows that jumping in to help kids is a short term solution, but creates a long term problem because it's only by kids having the, the experience of handling things for themselves. Do they develop that confidence that they can hand things in the, in the, handle things in the future. You know, that's the process by which resilience is really wired into kids' brains where the, the, the problem solving, putting things in perspective, prefrontal cortex part of the brain regulates the rest of the brain, including the stress response. So when your kid goes, oh my gosh, negatives, I have no idea how to do this. We want his brain or her brain to jump and say, well, okay, wait, how can I figure this out? Whom can I ask for help? As opposed to immediately sending up, you know, a, a flare for, for help and waiting for the cavalry, in this case, mom to come and rescue them. Yeah, I remember we had Wendy Mogul on the podcast a year mm -hmm. or two ago, and I remember had advice for older kids that you not respond to their texts immediately unless they were joyous texts. If it was, I made the team, then you respond right away. If it was, mom, I don't know where this is, you know, this is too hard, whatever, that you pause before responding. And yeah, so I'm, I'm struggling with that because, again, it's not a text being sent from across town. It's being like yelled at me from across my kitchen to sort of say, this is this is something that you can handle. I, I want to help my kids stress by taking it on for them, right? By taking over the reins, let me fix this for you. But in the long run, from what I understand from the book, from The Self-Driven Child, that giving your kids less control of their lives actually makes them more stressed. It doesn't make them feel better. It's counterproductive. I'll, I'll echo a point that I know Jess Leahy shared with you about the research of Steve, Steve Mayer and these rats in the cages. And these rats had this, you know, they were in the little cage and they got shocked. And when the one rat could spin the wheel, right, and stop the shock, you got all this activation in the, again, the prefrontal cortex, and it started to regulate the stress response. And fast forward, they could disconnect the wheel. Nobody tells the rat. He still spins the wheel and goes into coping mode, and he handles this bad situation. And it turns out that the single best marker, brain marker for mental health is how strong are the connections between the prefrontal cortex, the thinking rational part of your brain and the stress response. Because when something bad happens, we want our brains, our kids' brains to immediately jump into, okay, that's really bad. What can I do here? How can I, you know, what are my choices? 
as Jess talked about and Steve Mayer would talk about, that rat B that was yoked to rat A, rat B was saved by rat B, by rat A spinning the wheel, but it didn't help him at all. He became this total nervous wreck because he was saved all the time, but he had no sense of, of agency, of autonomy that I can do anything to help myself. I'm constantly looking to my brother rat to save me. And it's just, you know, and, it, and it's just what we as parents do. We feel so good when our kids are struggling. We, da, 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 we put on our cape, we go in there and save the day. And our kids look at us like, well, I mean, like, oh, thanks, mom. Thanks. I don't, I don't know what I would have done without you. But that's a terrible message for them to get stuck in the head of, I don't know what I would have done without you. Because then they constantly have to have us on, on a lifeline. If, if they text you and you don't respond within 30 seconds, do they, do they lose their minds? Kind of not where we want to be. The dominant manifestation of stress is avoidance, right? And so we avoid, I'm afraid of dogs, I'm afraid of elevators, I'm afraid of whatever, I'll walk up 14 flights of stairs. But, you know, everyday life can be stressful and school can be stressful and not knowing the answer can be stressful. But we want to help kids learn to tolerate that. When we constantly save them from that experience, it doesn't make them less stressed. Over time, it makes them more stressed. It builds up and up and up and up. And so what we really want to do is have the experience of sitting there in the stress with help, with support, with mom or dad saying, well, I'm not sure. We'll figure this out somehow and, and allow the kid to get used to that. And the stress response come back to normal and go, okay, that wasn't the end of the world. This is the dynamic that we're still trying to figure out. One of my kids with remote learning is the king of like, nailed it. You know, he's three minutes into class. He's like, I finished the assignment. And of course, <laughs> it's not, as I always say, is this your best work? And he's like, I mean, he thinks it is. The famous story about this child is I saw him dancing once and I said, you know, you're a pretty good dancer. You should take dance lessons. And he turned to me and he said, mom. I should teach dance lessons. Like he's just, he's ready to go. You know, he's super confident, but his approach to remote learning is quite similar, which is like fire up the laptop, knock out four questions. Eh, let's go with that. Seems pretty good to me. And he's done. And so it's been a challenge to try to say, you know, let's, are we doing our best work here? But I'm trying to take myself out of the, being the arbiter of what his best work is. But at the same time, if I leave it to himself, he's doing the nailed it routine and he's done with his work in six minutes and it's a hot mess. Well, you know, the, the good news is, is that the world has a natural tendency to correct misconceptions. I remember hearing this great story about Count Basie. And when he was a young kid, he played piano. He was obviously, you know, naturally musically talented, but he didn't practice at all. And who was his mother, his aunt, his grandmother, or someone would sit there and beam over him. Oh my gosh, it's so lovely to hear you play. So, but he never practiced. And then when he was eight, 10, whatever, he heard some other kid who was the same age get up and play something that was like a world beyond what he was playing. And he just sat there slack jawed being like, holy smokes. And then he started practicing. Yeah, hmm. I guess that's right. And I do see that in my kid who's a gymnast and he wants to be better and there he sees it. He's a little bit more willing to put in the work in certain areas, but I do think this remote learning time is very specific in terms of we're really seeing our kids operating systems and they're frustrating to us. And I think sometimes we over define our role in getting them from their operating systems to where they need to be. And that can be dicey. Yep. 
Yep. There's a wonderful researcher. If, if you know the Screenagers movies, there's a, the second one came out and, and I'm in there for a good, you know, 4.5 seconds talking about this, you know, same brain science of the experience of dealing with a stressful situation kind of wires the brain that helps you able to deal with a stressful situation in the future. Immediately thereafter in the movie, the, the film looks at the research of a woman named Jessie Borelli, who's a researcher at UC Irvine. And she's designed this wonderful, wonderful experiment that's very similar to what kids are doing within school right now. So it's a digital puzzle. So it's on a computer screen and they're trying to figure this thing out. Now, by design, the thing is really complicated. It looks easy, but it's not. And they have moms in there with them. So each kid has his mom in there. And the mom is there for moral support. And the only instructions are, don't offer help. Don't tell them how to do it. Don't, don't say it's twisted or do whatever. And you just, just to be there for moral support. And mom has a heart rate monitor and the oh, kid has a heart rate no. monitor. And the longer, we know where this is going. Oh, yes, you Please do. Please keep going. And yes, you do. And the longer the kid struggles with it, the more frustrating they get. But it's easier for them because they actually have some control. The moms to a one can't help themselves because it's so distressing for them to see their kid be distressed that they, no, sweetheart, t- try to turn it this way. No, m- no, move it, move it over this way, right? And as they jump in and override the, the, the prime directive, which is don't help, right? When they jump in, their stress, their heart, their heart rate monitor slows down and they feel better, but their kid's stress goes up. Why do you have to tell us things like this? You're fired from our podcast. Fair, right? We don't you know, like you anymore. Well, and it's funny because there's a story in the book about my son when he was in middle school. My wife is, is she te- she's serious academic. She teaches Latin. You know, she's got the school down, executive functions, you know, out both ears. Just remarkable. And, it, and, and she would say, God, it kills me to watch him waste so much time. And being the vaguely supportive husband, I just suggested don't watch because he is who he is, right? I mean, we know this from a brain perspective that a lot of people, especially boys, use procrastination to create enough activation, brain activation to get themselves to do the thing. The problem is moms with different brain systems and certainly more mature brains lose it before before realities hit the kid square in the face. And now mom's reacting and the kid's responding to mom rather than the, the circumstances. And so just step away. Let's take a break. And when we come back, I want to talk about homework consultants and how to become them. You got it. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses. First two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes are five times stronger, gripping mess more firmly, shall we say, and making diaper changes a breeze. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. So we agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used hero bread. It 
adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty-calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber, while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use the code motherhood at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code motherhood for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. Okay, so... Ned, in the book, you talk about that we should be homework consultants, that that should be our approach to homework. And I want to hear more about that and how to apply that to the at-home learning that's happening right now. Sure. You know, so, so this was my, my partner in Scribe, uh, Bill Strickshrude, is a, it was a clinical neuropsychologist. So he works with kids where learning isn't going well, right? They've got emotional problems, learning problems, attention problems, stuff isn't going well. And he would so often have parents say things like, oh, I dread dinner time because after dinner time, it's three hours of fighting, right? You know, it's World War III about homework. And he was asked in the mid-80s to write an article about homework. So, he first started by looking at all the research that had been done in 60 years about the benefits of homework. And it turns out in elementary school, it doesn't contribute to learning at all, at all. In 90 years, same thing. In middle school and high school, 45 minutes, then maybe an hour and a half. Once you get past two hours in high school, it actually has a decline in effect because probably kids are giving up so much sleep and have so much stress to get it done. And he thought, my goodness, if it doesn't contribute, particularly for little guys, and what, why have all this fighting? So he wrote this article for McCall's Magazine with the title of, I love you too much to fight with you about your homework. And you tell your kid, I, I just, I love you. You're the most important thing to me in the world. Why would I want to do that? But I'm willing to do anything I can to help, right? I'll, I'll check your work if you want. I'll sit with you side by side. You know, I'll, I'll be your consultant. I'll keep office hours. You tell me, how can I help? But I don't want to act like it's my responsibility to do this work because one, that's not true. Two, it's not respectful to you. And three, the more that I do your work or get you to do your work, I'm actually weakening you because you start to think that someone other than you is responsible for your success. And you just move into this consultant mode. So my son, when again, he was fifth or sixth grade, my wife was trying to help him with whatever, whatever. And there was an assignment that was not done. It was not handed in, not done well. I don't really honestly remember. And my wife turned to him and said, why didn't you hand it in? Or why didn't you whatever? A little bit of a little sharp. And he responded, because you didn't remind me. And I'm watching yep. this cooking. I'm like, oh. Amy is nodding vigorously. Right now. <laughs> and I'm like, dude, bad answer, bad answer. And I go over, I kind of put my arm around the shoulder. I'm like, First, we don't throw mom under the bus. Just not, not a good idea. Let's not do that, okay? And then I looked at her and I said, well, sweetheart, you can, you can kind of understand why he would feel that way, right? Because, I mean, my wife, again, she can handle her schedule, my schedule, my son's schedule, my daughter's schedule. Amy and Margaret, if you need anyone to outsource, she's incredibly responsible. Rates are very oh, no, reasonable, Amy's, right? Amy's all over right. it. She'll, she'll help her out. <laughs> right? But just because my wife could handle this better than could my son doesn't mean that she should have. 
right? And so, we were just in the finishing of this book. And, and so, we made this really hard pivot, right? And, and my wife, again, she's a teacher. At her middle school, they said, we don't, do, we don't pursue and rescue, right? We make ourselves available. We don't chase after kids. But it was hard for her to apply what she knew as an educator to her own kid. And so, we, we did this. And I, I can't tell you that it was not, you know, that it wasn't messy. I mean, because he would do things like get a 52 on a test. Why did you get a 52 on the test? I think I studied the wrong chapter. Oh, okay, right? And then you jump into consultant. Well, do you, do you know why I studied the wrong chapter? I'm not sure I wrote it, uh, wrote it down right. Okay, well, would you write your homework down? And we just went and you do this in a very gentle way where I'm, I work for the company. I don't work in the company. As a consultant, I'm here to help. But, but if the company goes down, it's not on me. And that's easier said than done. But he's doing great. And it's so much easier for me to have confidence, my wife to have confidence of this kid going after, off to college with fistfuls of our money and no supervision, knowing that he ran his own education. With our help, we didn't step away and we're both educators, but he was in charge of his own work through middle school, through high school, and of course now through college. And I, I think I want to scale this a little bit for our listeners, because I know for myself, I have a kid who is off of the traditional student profile. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I know that moms of kids in this situation feel like, easy for you to say, guys, my kid needs a lot of structure and support. My problem is not that I'm like an over-controlling, rigid mom. My problem is that my kid is really chasing a boulder that we always feel like is getting away from us, mm -hmm. or my kid really struggles with his emotional regulation and anxiety around these issues. And we're not just noodling at the margins here. We are in a situation where if I pass things off to my kid, he may not be ready to really take that and run with it. You know, he needs maybe more support than the typical kid. And so what do you say to a parent in that situation? Well, it's a, re it's a really good question. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, kids are all over the map in terms of how organized, how easy work is, how, you know, how much they motivate. And it's simply that we don't want to work harder than the kid does, right? We don't want to work harder than the kid does, in part because kids will often then start to resent what their parents do. I mean, particularly as, as things go along the line. I mean, you know, so often if a, if a parent is spending 80 units of energy trying to get a kid to give 20, and when I get more stressed out and I, and I go to 90, the kid goes to 10. And so for kids, you know, if you have ADHD, if you have executive function issues, if you have learning disabilities, these kids need all the help in the world, right? And so you have tutors, you have people at school and you have mom and dad helping. And, but it's simply that we offer help. We don't force it. We offer advice. We don't force it. Because when we start forcing, the kids feel forced. Again, their stress level goes through the roof. That amygdala flares, and they will start to resist what's in their own best interest. Now, I'll talk about my daughter, who was, again, super bright. And in eighth grade, the last three months of eighth grade, full school refusal. Full school refusal. School refusal meaning says, I'm not going. Not going at all. I'm not going to school at all. And I, and I like I help people get into college. We're on the cusp of high school, right? Where's my brain going, right? But we only can change things when we change the energy. And so, if you have a kid who's a lot of work, it'd be like lifting weights. I had the student I was working with who was very complicated, very strong linguistically, but math to him was like just a foreign language. And so, I gave him a math test to do, but I only gave him the first third of the questions and they go from easy to hard because I didn't want to overwhelm him. So, so go home, do this, do the best you can, write your workout. 
and we'll come back and walk through them. Well, he comes back and they're perfect. Perfect. Every single thing right, which surprised the heck out of me. So I was like, oh, so tell me, t- tell me about, about this. And he said, oh, yeah, Jake helped me with those. Awesome. Tell me, who's Jake? Oh, Jake's my other tutor. Oh, so you took your homework from one tutor. <laughs> Not even, this isn't even for school stuff. And you had your other tutor help you. So I looked at this guy and he's this big strapping guy. I said, do you lift weights? And he's like 6'2 and 210 pounds. Yeah, he lifts weights. And I said, tell me again, how does spotting work? And for people who don't lift weights, that's the idea if I'm trying to do bench press and it's a really heavy weight and I'm at the limit of what I can do. One of you guys stands behind me and when I need help, you help pull it up. But you don't lift the whole bar up for me, go up and down and up and down because I'm not lifting the weights. You lift 5% of it or 8% of it or 2% of it, just enough so I can feel that I did it, but not so much that I get, not so little that I get crushed and not so much that I feel like someone else has done that work for me. So I have a question for this. This is like personal parenting advice hours. I really appreciate this. <laughs> it's therapy time, people. Um, I have a kid that has, you know, executive function issues and very forgetful. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm as I hear you talking about this and becoming more of a consultant, it occurs to me that my issue might be that I am inconsistent with how I apply things. So we got hmm. into a huge fight this morning because we're late leaving for a place where you need to have a bag packed with four very specific things. One's missing. Where did I put it? I didn't put it anywhere. Why didn't you pack it last night? Because you didn't tell me to pack it last night. And you're right. Like I reacted so negatively to that. But the truth is I didn't actually put anybody on notice that I was going to stop asking about it the night before or making that kid do it. You see what I'm saying? I can't just sometimes be all over it and sometimes say, you can't expect me to do this and be mad that he's expecting me to do this. Yeah, it's a really good, it's a really good question. You know, and all of us, particularly kids with executive functions, work better when there are systems, right? Yeah. Because with executive function with ADHD, it's a relative, you know, weakness, immaturity, wobbliness, right? Among other things with our working memory. So we can only hold so many things in our head at once. My son, when he was, it was in fourth grade or we'd sit there and, and, and time to go and can you tie your shoes? And then somebody would make the d- damn fool mistake of asking him a question. And then he started <laughs> to answer the question and he stopped tying his shoes. Right. And my wife's like, can't you talk and tie your shoes at the same time? And I'm like, evidence suggests not. Right. And the answer might legit be no. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's so hard. I mean, can you really remember how it felt to be in fourth grade versus sixth grade? No. Right. And we just don't know what's developmentally appropriate. And we can have kids who are behind or ahead of that curve. So with things like getting out the, the front door in an organized way, we're big fans of, you know, family meetings and collaborative problem solving. And you can say something like, look, I, I, I hate feeling so stressed in the morning and rush, rush, rushing. And where is this and where is that? Because what happens is I get mad because I'm so stressed and then I bark at you and then I feel terrible about that later. And I'm sure you don't love it either. Right. And and my guess is it isn't great for you kind of rushing around. Let's take some time and figure out a system so that your stuff is ready. You know, maybe maybe we do it the night before, you know, and I'd much rather have you be on top of this because this is your schoolwork. But I'm happy to check it, you know, after dinner at 730, I'll check that the bag is ready for the next day if you want me to. Right. And again, you're offering help. You're playing consultant and and you're doing this collaborative problem solving with the kid because this is a problem, not your kid's problem, not your problem. This is a problem for the whole family. Because if, if things are a hot mess and everyone's frustrated going out the door, that's, that's, it's not a great way to start, start the day for anyone. There are times we will all rescue our kids at certain times. And it's yes. this balance of finding that. And I was, 
you know, I feel like my parents were pretty good in this arena. They were more, certainly more checked out than we were just generationally. <laughs> but at some point I was driving, I didn't get my license till late because I grew up in New York and I, I didn't, you know, I didn't drive a lot. And I moved to LA and at some point I was driving, I was in my early thirties. I was driving on the 101 freeway, very busy at rush hour in the fast lane and my car just stopped. Like the engine exploded and the car came to a full stop. <laughs> How and exciting. I picked up my cell phone and I called my dad and he was really screaming at me. Why are you calling me? Call the police. But I was crying and I was like, dad, I need you. I'm stuck on the 101. And I think that it's an example of like, yes, that's not the right choice in that situation. But sometimes our kids are going to get overwhelmed and be like, I need rescuing in this situation. And I need my mommy or my daddy to take care of me because I'm completely underwater here. And that's okay. This happens sometimes, but we just don't want to be the person who is getting that call six times a day. It's an excellent point. I'm really, I'm really glad you made that because, you know, when we talk about kids having a, a sense of control, it's not that we put a toddler in charge of the household or you've got to go hunt for your own food or something. It's simply that we don't want to do for kids that which they can do for themselves. Right, right. You know, and, and that changes what a four-year-old can handle and what a six-year-old can handle and what this four-year-old can handle versus that four-year-old can handle, you know, are, are very different things. Because the opposite of feeling a sense of control that I can handle this, you know, is feeling, is feeling overwhelmed, right, or helpless or hopeless. And too much stress is, is simply a pressure on a person that overwhelms their capacity to deal with it. And everyone's capacity and it is different for different ages, for different people, and even in different situations. Maybe at this point, you're an ace with, with handling, you know, breakdowns on major freeways, but you're not as comfortable with, you know, whatever else it is. You're not going to stop. I'm not going to stop loving my kids and wanting to save them when they really need saving. It's just that we really want to ask, is this something that the kid can actually handle and can tolerate and get through with their help rather than my throwing on a cape and going to rescue them when it's actually not, you know, the superhero situation. And your dad couldn't help you in that situation. Am I right? I mean, he was in New York and you were in L.A. and you had to figure it out. He was he was not able to help me, but it still made me feel better to make the call. The emotional support was there. <laughs> and, and realistically, it is kind of a metaphor for what we're saying, which he was like, I don't really have this one. Go figure it out. And I eventually called AAA <laughs> and the police rescued me. But yes, exactly. Like, I, I still needed the emotional support. OK, we're going to be right back after this break. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different and fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E. Lumen.me and use the code FRESH at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. 
Amy, when I'm dehydrated, I get headaches, I get cranky, and I don't feel good in general. Also, I am dehydrated a lot of the time. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because being good with the water bottle is one thing, but getting that sodium and potassium with the fluids, turns out that is the key to saying optimally hydrated. So whether you're looking to hydrate during your workout, while traveling, or at the end of a long night, Sports Research Hydrate Electrolytes have got you covered with over 65 trace minerals, seven essential vitamins, and coconut water powder. Crisp and refreshing without any sugar, this is hydration powered by Sports Research. Each box has 16 little stick packs that you can take on the go, whether you're headed to an exercise class, a night out with friends, or a podcasting conference. And did we mention they come in delicious flavors from raspberry lemonade to cherry pomegranate? Stay hydrated with Sports Research Hydrate Electrolytes. Visit sportsresearch.com and use the code WHATFRESH at checkout for 50% off your purchase of Hydrate. That's S-P-O-R-T-S-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H dot com, sportsresearch.com, and use code WHATFRESH for 50% off your Hydrate Electrolytes order. Okay, we're back with Ned Johnson, and you wanted to say one more thing about emotional support. Yeah, well, so if we go back to the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that problem solves, finds solutions, put things into context, you know, runs the rest of our brain as opposed to the stress response. In that situation, just being able to talk to your dad and and say, Dad, I'm so scared, and da, da, da. And, and in a perfect world, he was listening and and you were being heard and he was empathetic and eventually said, call the police. What, what are you kidding me, right? <laughs> Mostly he was yelling at me, oh, but he, yes, okay. <laughs> I think that was what was underneath it. Lots of love. Lots of love underneath. I'm going to act like he said all those things. Because what happens is, you know, with our kids, right, if they're having a lousy time on Zoom and, and you're so, – so tell me more about that. When kids feel – empathy, when they feel that we, we hear them, right? When we say, let me repeat that back and make sure I got that right. And go, yeah, that's exactly it. That lowers their stress response. And it brings the thinking part of the brain back online. And simply by listening well and being empathetic to kids, we kind of restore their brain to proper functioning so that they can often then solve their problems for themselves. And all that we've done is, is be this kind of non-anxious presence that, that brings their brain back online. Oh. That is okay. exactly what happened. That's a good. So you're, point. you're like a sounding board. You're not a problem solver. You're a, a sounding board, and you you're empathetic and you're present, but you're not fixing things. Yeah, I mean, it's just like the kind of typical, you know, or stereotypical paradigm where husband's wife, you know, wife will start telling me about it. And really, she just wants to vent and have me go, yeah, that's lousy. That was not cool. What, what right. happened at work or whatever. And, and so often I start giving solutions. She's like, you know, you know, <laughs> I'm not asking for a solution. I'm just looking for a, a sympathetic ear here. And so that's something we can even do with our kids is, you know, is this really venting again is off your chest or do you want me to jump in and solve this? Because again, we offer help. And I think one of the reasons we do this is because it's easier. And that's why we have to fight against it sometimes. Mm-hmm. I was just talking about, I have a kid who is an unbelievable shoe loser. I've never seen anything like it. Like he just flings shoes in every direction and he can never find his shoes. And there is a huge temptation to just go to the you know cheapest store I can find and buy six pairs of shoes and always have them by the door. Because that would make my life easier than starting the morning with school, shoe craziness every single morning. But this is where you step back a little bit and say, okay, 
this is pretty low stakes. You know, if he's a little late because he doesn't have his shoes, we can learn something from this and we can work on this system of put your, here's a receptacle for you to put them in. I'm going to tape out two boxes on the floor where your shoes go at night, whatever the system I can help put in. But that the solution of me just buying shoes so we don't have to deal with it anymore is not actually the correct solution to make this problem disappear. We got to try to solve it. Makes me think my, my daughter who got tired of matching socks so now she just wears, you know, different colored socks. And so maybe your son could do that. As long as he has a left shoe and a right shoe, he's probably good. They don't have to be the same pair <laughs> yeah. of shoes. Make him a new fashion trend. His best hope would be to like hop to school on one, one rain boot because there's never any shoes. <laughs> I have a topic I want to uh, ask you about from the book. The book is called The Self-Driven Child. And you talk in the book about radical downtime and the brain's default mode network. And I want to hear more about that. Sure. Well, I'll start with the default mode network and then come back around to radical downtime. So early on, um, when neuroscience scientists were using functional MRIs, they put people in and they'll have them sing or do math or count on their fingers and see what part of the brains light up. And they were starting with kind of the default assumption that if you're not actively thinking about anything, that your brain's kind of quiet and nothing's going on and then they could see what changes. And it turns out that's completely wrong. It turns out when people are not actively engaged in a task, this default mode network that uses about 70% of the brain's energy starts to engage. And the default mode network is responsible for thinking about the past, thinking about the future, reflecting on relationships, reflecting on experiences. And we're, we're kind of putting things in place. And it's incredibly important for developing a sense of empathy developing an understanding of other people, developing a coherent sense of ourselves. And so it's incredibly important work, particularly for adolescents, whose kind of primary work really is to figure out who am I? Who do I want to be? And you don't get a sense of who am I and what do I care about without thinking about who I am and, and what do I care about? And so we worry a lot about kids who are overly programmed and with technology overly stimulated, and they never really have to have downtime. Because technology is, makes, is, is so omnipresent and so pervasive and so fast, right, that we're, we're constantly looking for that stimulation, we feel that the, the kind of antidote to that is, is not just, you know, painting or, or you know, playing golf. It's, it's radical downtime. So this default mode network engages when we're not actively doing something else. And so we look for this in things like in daydreaming and mind wandering, you know, in, in walking in the woods, what the, the called forest bathing, the Japanese called Shinbun and Yoku, when we don't have our phones with us, right? And we go off and, and within about five minutes of walking in nature, we just start to kind of think about stuff and ourselves and, and just, and we're really reflecting on things in a way that's not rumination of kind of like playing things over and over and over. We also get this in meditation, specifically, particularly, I would say, a transcendental meditation. But Bill's been a practitioner for about 46 years. I've been doing this for about 10 years. And, and transcendental meditation creates this real coherence within the brain. Actually, one of Bill's favorite stories, they taught TM to a group of middle school kids who all had um, ADHD. And then afterwards, they asked him about it, you know, kind of what were the effects. And they all tend to say things like, I can focus better, you know, I, I can sleep better. And this one kid who was wildly impulsive said, you know, before I learned TM, if I was walking down the hall and, and someone bumped into me, I'd just turn around and hit him. And now that I've been doing TM, if someone bumps me, and I'll stop and think, should I hit him or not? Right? 
And, and for anyone who's got a kid who's really impulsive, to have any gap between the stimulus and the response is really a big thing. But this whole default mode network is so valuable for developing empathy and a coherent sense of itself. We just think we really want to structurally try to put into kids' lives times when they're not doing anything. What's the practical application of that? I'm thinking of the mom of the five-year-old listening right now who's like transcendental meditation seems like a completely different world than where I'm at right now with my dishwasher. Yeah. So it's a really good point. Un unstructured play, you know, for, for little guys, you know, there's no kid under five needs anything with technology. They just don't. When it's creative play, when it's imagined play, when it's dress up, when it's playing with blocks, kids are interacting with physical things, but they're in their own heads making up these wonderful make-believe worlds, where as opposed to technology, it makes it highly, highly directed. And so we really just think that with little kids, we want to have as much time to play without parents or teachers or tutors or coaches or whatever telling them what to do, which is we give them the tools and the toys and we let them do things. As they get into middle school, there's a wonderful guy in DC named Cliff Sussman, and he talks about one kids start to use technology oscillating between high dopamine activities, things that are highly stimulating and low dopamine activities. So it's fine if your kid wants to play, you know, an hour and a half or two hours of video games, but maybe you do an hour of video games and then you go and walk the dog or you do an hour and a half of Fortnite and then you go out and play Frisbee with your, with your brother. Because when you are constantly in a highly stimulated situation, we know, remember that dopamine, this neurotransmitter is an excitatory neurotransmitter. And so it gets us super jazzed up, but neurons, brain cells can't be in that state all the time because it'll basically kill them. So what happens is the brain then down regulates the amount of dopamine receptors. And so then you need more of this stimulation to get yourself to, to experience the same high. And so with video games, we just don't want to be on them, you know, hours and hours on end, play on it, then go draw, play on it, then go play kickball. We can be on screens but then have time off screens. And certainly right now with COVID, that's pretty hard. So what I've done with my daughter who loves games is we've sort of bought every board game you could possibly imagine because school is on screen all day long. And then after school, she wants to be watching YouTube. And my wife and I are trying to make sure that there's times when she's using her brain without using a screen we keep saying don't miss the lessons of the pandemic. And for us, one of the lessons of the pandemic is there's something on the other side of being bored. And my kids have taken up new hobbies. They're drawing. My kid who is not artistic is drawing a ton. That drawing time is that downtime. His mind is wandering. He's drawing. And so I think sometimes we feel like, oh, well, the pandemic makes this impossible. But I would put in people's path that the pandemic may make this more possible. If you set up you know, realistic, stringent guidelines around screens, your kids kind of have to fill the rest of their days. And it will involve a ton of whining about being bored. But if you can push through that whining time, they will eventually start to find other things to do because they will actually get bored of telling you they're bored. There's a book called Bored and Brilliant about how spacing can unlock your creativity. And it literally is when we're, when we're not actively thinking about other things that our brains make all of these connections. And we, we come up with solutions and problems. I, my best thinking I do when I'm washing the dishes or doing yard work. So if I'm working on something for a new book, I'll read some stuff, I'll, I'll think about it, and then I'll go off and purposely do some kind of really an associative task. It doesn't require my full attention. I'm raking the leaves or washing dishes and my brain will get to work on the problem. And then just sort of, it'll just sort of burble up and go, ah, that's the thing. Oh, there's the solution because your brain naturally wants to create 
coherence. I want to ask about older kids, though. I, I have teenagers who, you know, it gets a little harder to say, like, give me that phone, give me that phone. I can say, why don't you go outside and do something? Come on, go walk the dog with me, you know. But how do we give older kids, how do they come to this idea on their own that they need some radical downtime so that they're self-motivated to have more of it? It's complicated, right? Because you can't make kids want what they don't want particularly with screen times and technology, generally, we're trying to help our kids learn to manage them themselves rather than us managing, right? So I love the work of Deborah Heitner, who talks about, you know, modeling, not managing for kids. And so you do this when your kid is in the next room, but can overhear you. So it, it feels indirect rather than right at them. It's like, my brain is so fried from being on the stupid Zoom calls, you know, eight hours today. I, gosh, I, I really, I just want to sit here. I'm looking for the next half hour to be off screen, you know, and you talk to your spouse about, this or another kid say, I'm just going to go for a walk and clear my head. Or I'm so looking forward to reading, you know, reading letters that don't move, right? Because it's it's on a book. It's not a screen time, a, a tablet. And have kids sort of hear that a bit. I think it's also a perfectly fair thing to find an article, probably not a book, but find an article that talks about this and say, you know, I'd love to have you read this because I don't want to lecture about this because I know that's irritating for both of us. But it's important to me that you understand this. So they just make informed decisions about this. But a lot of times kids will come to this themselves. I remember a kid I was working with a couple years ago. She kind of deleted all of her social media apps. She was kind of doing a detox. She said, I'm so tired of looking at other people's lives. And a lot of times kids, when they're, you know, students, I do all this test prep stuff when they're preparing for final exams or, you know, college applications or whatever, they'll delete all these different apps because they know how distracting they are to them. That's a wonderful thing. And so I think we model more than anything else. And if you really see it as a problem, you say up front, look, obviously, I can't make you not use these things because, you know, one, that would be a mistake. And two, you, I want you to be able to figure this out for yourself. It does make me a little worried as your mom to watch you spend hours and hours on this. And I'm wondering if there's a, if we could talk about this so that you're using a way that, that you're getting out of it what you want, but it also doesn't make me feel like a terrible parent. And then I guess I said the last thing on that is if we're trying to have influence on our kids about how they're using social media, how they're using video games, it helps enormously to first be empathetic and try to understand what they're getting out of it. I have a client who's a pediatrician who'd spend a decade kind of railing about technology. And then she did this Facebook post about how Fortnite is like the perfect game because it's all these kids together and they work as a squad and when they can do silly dances. And particularly now in COVID, it's a wonderful way for kids to work together and share the experience, you know, the agony of defeat and the thrill of victory when, you know, when one of those things happens. So if we can really try to, you know, ask real questions and show real curiosity about why, particularly with teenagers, what is it you like about this? Part? Tell me more about that. And then I, with my daughter, I've tried to memorize kind of what show she watches and ask, so what's going on with, you know, th this person? Because it's much more likely that she'll hear me if she feels that I hear her. And it's also helpful, I think, to contextualize all of this stuff sometimes. I mean, I goof on my kids' YouTube videos, and I'm like, wow, I think you might actually be getting dumber by watching, you know, these people open rappers yeah. or whatever. <laughs> and, and, and with Fortnite, I'm like, great upside, you're hanging out with your friends and solving problems. Downside, you're using the phrase kill shot and headshot, and I'm not a big fan of that. So, you know, I think you have to just have conversations around this stuff with your kid where you contextualize, like, there's good and bad to these things, guys. I think that's perfectly well said, and 
and in many ways, because you're poking gentle fun at them, you're, you're letting them know that you're in on this. You're also letting them know that you're watching, that you're paying attention. You're not jumping them. You're not you're not lecturing them. You're not jumping down their throats. But there's, it's also a way of saying, I, I know what's going on, you know, and. We know that the best models for parenting are high love and high discipline, right? And so when you're saying, I'm watching this, it's, it's a way of letting them know that there's a little bit of safety because mom's, mom's paying attention. She's not out to lunch on this stuff. Ned, tell us about your book you're working on now and uh, The Self-Driven Child and everything about you where we can find you. Well, the first book, of course, is Self-Driven Child, The Science and Sense of Giving Your Kids More Control Over Their Lives. And you can kind of buy it anywhere. The second book we're working on has a working title uh, called What Do You Say? And we're still working on the subtitle. But the idea was that a lot of folks liked, really liked the science in The Self-Driven Child. They liked the stories, but they then found themselves sometimes a little stuck in a situation feeling like, oh man, I said the wrong thing. It didn't work out. And they're kind of looking for scripts a little bit. So we've, we worked on chapters of, you know, talking to kids to express empathy, the language of a consultant, the language of a non-anxious presence, talking to kids to promote change, the pursuit of happiness, this kind of thing. And so really just going through the topics that are awfully important for us to work with our kids, not on them, to help them you know, develop in ways that, that gets them good outcomes and really preserves the relationships that ultimately we want to have with our wonderful kids. Awesome. And wow. we will link to you and in the show notes so people can come find you, find your work, and uh, keep following along. Thanks so much, Ned, for being with us today. Thanks for having me. You guys are so much fun. <laughs> Thanks. This was really great. Thank you. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Guilt Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast.